everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Shop and Chivalry Podcast. My guest today is an Ocean Springs native, an author, and uh, really somebody who just has a passion for everything that's Mississippi and along this Gulf Coast. We talk about everything from cotton, from uh, the northern part of the states, as well as the uh, her analysis of the sort of impact of cotton in the south and its and its international production value uh, and as well as how we kind of got there we also talk about in brief detail another book that she's working on and we discuss some of the people that she met in her book encounters off the beaten path a book of southern short stories in this book she basically just highlights the small interactions that we often take for granted as she meets people everything from a conversation in an elevator from a gentleman who's a sous chef at a restaurant and working on his masters to an individual in his 50s who worked for or works for Burger King for 21 years who just has a passion for seeing people happy and that was literally the reason that he loves his job is because he gets to see people happy every single day at Burger King so again many great stories do pick that up that's encounters off the beaten path a book of southern short stories everybody you're going to enjoy this conversation if you love Mississippi and you love the Mississippi stories you're definitely going to enjoy this podcast everybody please welcome Mike guest, Sarah Boger. Well, are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Shop Jewelry Podcast. I'm here with my guest today, Miss Sarah Boger. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, so, so you dropped off this book for me and thank you. Signed it, signed it and everything. Uh, Encounters Off the Beaten Path, a book of Southern short stories. So you're an author, right? Right. What else are you? I, um, I'm a retired physical therapist. Mm-hmm. I was a, a mother for, I still am a mother, obviously, <laughs> but I raised three children uh, who are grown and married and have their own. So I'm a grandmother as well now. Uh, I make jewelry for um, fun, and I also sell it. Okay. And I am a photographer. Um, and you like, take some amazing photos, by the thank way. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. That that book is considered photojournalistic, but they're not my best images. They definitely tell part of the story. I say I, I uh, can um, use a sing- single image what I work to paint with words. So I love to write, but sometimes an image is a better way to tell a story. So, so Sarah, where are you from originally? Grew up in Ocean Springs, was okay. born in the old Biloxi Hospital, lived a pretty idyllic life um, for the first 18 years, and then left the coast, went to Delta State University for three years, and then uh, went to physical therapy school at the University of Mississippi Medical Center in Jackson, mm-hmm. and uh, was married to a man who was from Colorado for almost 24 years. So um, I have literally been around the world and come back home now for the last two years. I'm back in Ocean Springs. What, why do so much travel and leave Mississippi? What, what, what brought you back down here? Well, I left because I wanted to see the world and find out what was on every beaten path that, you know, I could find. Sure. And from Russia to all the way, I guess, to the Hawaiian Islands would be the farthest I've been west. Uh-huh. Um, 
I saw that people are people no matter where you go yeah. and they have the same basic needs and this is home no matter where I go so my mother was um, somewhat ill and ended up passing away about a year ago right now and so I came back home to sort of be with her two mm-hmm. years ago and then just made the decision that there's nowhere else I really want to live I can yeah. go wherever I want to go but mm-hmm. um, I'm here because I just I love salt water yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's in my I say I have salt water in my veins and delta dirt on my boots oh there you go so I when I was active duty I, I had a job that took me to uh, over 50 countries in five years wow so and and that was I kind of had the similar feeling right is that I've been to all these places I could go to anywhere and yet at the end of the day there was no place like home you know um but uh but yeah i i just i absolutely love this place and and it was for me i had to leave it to actually appreciate it i definitely know that's true because i said i'd never come back And and it wasn't that i didn't like this place um it's just i always thought there was more somewhere out there so to speak yeah yeah i i kind of took the uh the path of the prodigal son right you know you go out and you have your adventures and you realize that you need to come back and you know you've 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 got duties here so um this is uh where i where i should be and i fought tooth and nail i did not want to come back here uh truth be told i wanted to move somewhere up north like somewhere colder you know because i run hot normally like um, i hear you it, <laughs> so. yeah nothing like a colorado summer with when you can open the windows and, yeah and no bugs and no humidity but especially up in the high country but um yeah i wanted to be somewhere that had the same uh, latitude as germany because a lot of german hotels do not even have air conditioners they've got these huge oh, windows man. and you know they just take advantage of that so as long as you don't have the bugs coming in i'm all about no oh yeah air conditioner oh yeah it's cool <laughs> yeah uh-huh yeah and that's and that's certainly the challenge so so have you always been the sort of like kind of storyteller i have yeah i i, I was um <laughs> I've reconnected with my seventh grade science teacher, okay. whose name was James Shadnagel via Facebook years ago, probably almost, I don't know, it's been five or six or more years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was after he discovered that I had released my first book, Outer Edge of Grace, and he got in touch with me uh, via Facebook Messenger. And... Um, told me how much my book had meant to him but he remembered he did not remember what he asked me to write the 500 word theme about but I reminded him what it was because I always wanted to participate so I didn't always raise my hand in the seventh grade before I answered his questions or asked the one that I had probably more likely and he said Sarah Boje you're gonna have to write a 500 word theme on how to make friends with an earthworm so I do not have that theme. I wish I did. <laughs> but, but it was most certainly colorful, I can, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> at least, you know, he paddled the boys, but he didn't paddle us. He made us write themes. And I had more than a couple that I had to write for him. Interesting. Yeah, I got I got paddled my senior year in high school. <laughs> sure well, did. What'd you do? Uh, you, you may not have seen the movie, maybe you have, but there was a movie called, I think it was dirty work or Billy Madison. It was definitely Billy Madison. And so they, these two characters were, you know, drinking and, and they just, they got a burger and they got a pickle. One had mustard on it. One had ketchup and they just threw it on the window and it, and they would, they were betting to see which one would win. (laughs) 
sliding down, right? <laughs> totally stupid concept. But I decided I was just going to do that for some reason this week. And uh, see how far they would slide and well, which one got Yeah, but there. the thing is, in, in true <laughs> arrogant 17-year-old form, I just threw them up there. You'd see that, and then they'd stay. And, they'd have, and of course, the school would have to come by and, and clean it up. And I did this, like, Monday, Tuesday – and Wednesday, and on Wednesday, the principal was behind me. I didn't see him, and he goes, okay, Brian, let's go. And I was like, where? And he's like, yeah. you know, because I'm like, what, I didn't do it, you know? But uh, I'm innocent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, I've been waiting to find who was doing that all week, and I caught you red-handed. Let's go. <laughs> so, oh, that's so, a great story. So we go to the principal's office, and uh, the principal's like, look, I'm not even going to give you the option because you could either have the option of like suspension where you call your parents or you get paddled. They document it, right? He's like, I'm not, I'm not even going to give you the option of being paddled. We're just going to send you home. Now, I don't want to interrupt dad while I he's at work. So. Yeah. yeah. So, so I was like, no, 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 please. I'll take twice, twice the licks. Just do not call my dad. He's like, no, we're calling your dad. And so they call my dad and, and he picks up. He's like, uh, this is uh, so-and-so from the high school. Uh, we've got your son here. He's been misbehaving. Uh, we're going to need you to come pick him up. He's going to be suspended for the rest of the week. And there's a short pause, and my dad goes, okay, um, it's going to be like 25 minutes. Uh, have you all paddled him yet? <laughs> and the principal goes, well, no, sir. The way it works, if we're going to send him home, we don't give him that option. He goes, no, no, no. I understand what the policy is. Could you paddle him for me? And so, and so the principal, and of course, is on speakerphone. He he, he looks at me with a smirk and goes, Mr. Belford, for you, I will most certainly do that. <laughs> so I got paddled there. Wish granted. Suspended. And, of course, I got you oh, know, spanked to home. Oh, man, so, yeah. you got it all. I got it all, yeah. Oh, you know? shoot. Yep. No, I, I, they never paddled me, but they wrote. I had to write a lot of different themes okay. over the years. See, they were training you. Yes. They were training <laughs> Yes. And, and then I had um, the only formal, for, and I'm going to put that in quotes, uh, writing training I've ever had was uh, Ms. Ball was our junior English teacher and she taught grammar. Okay. And then I had uh, a wonder, and I mean, so she really like, you did it right. There wasn't any, even on like daily homework, you had to do it right. She was tough, but I learned so much under her. But um, then my freshman year, um, I had freshman comp with a Dr. Sullivan at Delta State, and I guess he must have seen potential. I don't know if he did to everyone what he did to me, but I'd go turn in a paper, and he'd say, Mm-mm, go back and take out about half the words. And it's kind of like a, if, you, if you've ever seen um, A River Runs Through It, where mm-hmm. the dad was teaching those two boys how to write, and he'd, you know, he'd, like, use as few words as possible. And I have been called by certain children of mine that I'm loquacious. Okay. <laughs> I probably am, and I'm a little bit flowery when I write. It's kind of my style, though, but I work now to to tell stories with as few words as possible, and that's coming a long way, so. Really? Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that whole economy of words concept, so. Excellent. All right, well, so what, what inspired you to write this book, Encounters Off the Beaten Path? Well, to tell you what inspired me to write this book, I would tell you about my first book. Okay. Um, Outer Edge of Grace took me 16 years to write 96 pages. And I say it's a story of pain and loss and looking for what I will call little R redemption and everyday things. Because big R redemption for me is 
what Jesus did for me on the cross. Okay. So little R redemption would be moments like this where I exchange um, thoughts, ideas, some something that um, some moment that makes me know that it, it that that day is meaningful. So the first book is about um, my son. My only son was born with a severe urological birth defect, and uh, our my marriage didn't make it after 24 years. And it was a really my girls had to suffer because of what happened with my son. But I would do it all over again the way that I did it because my son is now 35 and living a great life, as are my girls. Um, but there was a huge price tag paid for everyone. I mean, I, I wasn't perfect as a mother. Um, and I wasn't perfect as a caregiver, but caregiving is a real um, hard thing, no matter who you are, no yeah. matter whether it. So I finished the first book. I started writing, I say, the first book for my son to help give him his memory. I finished for me and I published for other people because I believe that it's a very lonely job to be a caregiver. This book came out of my emergence from all of that pain and loss, divorce bitterness sorrow of everything that i could have that you know in my mind i was somewhat of a victim there's no doubt there's no other way to say that this book was born out of my renewal of um realizing everybody's got pain and loss it's not that i ever compared mine to anyone else but Mm -hmm. it was grab those moments where they're significant whatever they are so this book, every one of those stories, there are 19 little separate short stories in that book with an image to pair with it that were significant interchanges between myself and someone else. There's one story in there called um, something to do with an elevator, and it was literally an elevator ride talking to someone from the second floor to the first floor. Interesting. Um there, you know, there's a, I mean, it's all, all of the stories in that book are significant because it made a difference in my day. And so I started looking for those moments of little R redemption where someone poured into my life simply because I took the time to listen. And so it's all about listening. It's all about, you know, looking. I mean, if we don't look, then you might not see that rainbow. If you don't look, you might not feel the the sand between your toes. And so it's all about just those are all stories of people that shared part of their life with me in the most incredible ways. When you're saying looking, are you talking about looking outside or is this sort of a metaphor for looking inside yourself? Oh, it's because always about looking. Well, it's both yeah. because if I went years without seeing sunrises and sunsets for what they really were, which was a gift from God of just color. Sometimes there, I don't even, there's no color, but it's, it's light and um, the contrast of light and shadow, but usually there's color involved. It's all about going from seeing the world like the cover is in black and white and shades of gray to living and breathing in color, which for me is just living out loud, being who I am and, uh, and and hearing someone else, you know, communicate to me whatever's going on with in their own life that would um, let me know. Like they just my uh, some of the stories are just my listening 
to someone else tell me their story. Some mm. of the stories are about people, like for example, there's one story in there called Biscuits of Blessing. And it's about a woman in a, um, you know, some of the best food in Mississippi would be found in... Um, Certainly unexpected places. Especially uh, service stations in the middle of nowhere. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So there was a woman in a service station, uh, worked in a service station in Nanawaya, Mississippi, or Noxipater. She was in Noxipater, but Nanawaya is out from there. Great names we have in Mississippi. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> and so um, I had asked her. I, every morning I would go, I was doing a travel job for physical therapy, and I would stop at the gas station and order the same thing every morning. I don't know, a biscuit, something terrible for me, a biscuit, bacon, gravy, whatever it was. I don't remember. And I wanted to do offer something to the people that I worked with in this rehab department. So I said, would you please make me X number of biscuits and bacon so I can take it to my department? So I did, and I stopped on a Friday morning, and she said, and I was literally going to go out of town that afternoon. So I was a little early, trying to get to work a little early. She said, her eyes got real big. I thought she was going to cry. And she said, they're not out of the oven yet. You're early. Well, I didn't know she'd paid attention to exactly what time I got there. <laughs> but she knew, she'd paid attention to everything. So she said, can you wait? I said, oh, oh yes, ma'am. Because I knew she'd gone to, obviously gone to a lot of trouble. Yeah. So long story short, I had things I was working on in my car. I don't know what it was. And so I went to my car to wait. The next thing I know, I look up and here comes the woman with this huge, like tin aluminum thing with aluminum foil over the top of it, filled with these, not just biscuits, hot biscuits and just fried bacon and whatever else, you know, jelly and butter, whatever mm -hmm. else she put in there, yeah. bringing it to my car. And I'm like, bowled over that anyone would take make such effort to do something like that because that's not what i asked i just thought i'll pick up biscuits we'll throw them in the microwave yeah. and be fine. well i said oh my goodness you're so kind for having done that so her name was candace so i go to pull the money out of my pocket that i know is what i would pay and some extra and she said her eyes got big and watery and she said oh no ma'am no, ma'am, I did not do this for you to pay me. I said, no. <laughs> no, 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 I'm taking these people, these for other people. She said, I know, but you blessed my life just by being who you are. She said, I want to bless your life and the lives of the people you work with by giving you these biscuits. That's amazing. So, it, and then she ended up not wanting me to take her picture, but she let me. And it was just one of those moments where she's giving out of really what she didn't have. I mean, and she's cooking in a service station on the corner of Naxpater, Mississippi. She couldn't have been making a lot of money. Right. But she gave out of what she didn't have, which to me is the definition of true philanthropy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, in, I'm inclined to agree. And those are such amazing stories, too, where, where somebody who... Um, it, felt compelled in some way that that you didn't even know that you were a part of that that uh compulsion really and out of it birthed this meaningful experience and this memory that you get to now distill down for other people to to to, to feel and experience through the written word it's amazing it, it is and um so the opportunities that i've had uh that came out of this painful period of time in my life 
that ended in great success because my son is all three of my children are extremely successful and my son's healthy and just he and his wife just had their first child so all of that which was a difficult time in my life produced these three amazing people but then out of out of all of that that I chose to write down which was by far the most difficult 96 pages I've ever written all of that now has allowed me from going to see the world in black and white and shades of gray to what I call living and breathing in color so I I take those moments this kind of moment where you're talking real and it's it's um it has some meaning and Mm -hmm. I think I said to you earlier when we were just chatting my goal in life would be to disarm someone who may kind of have their whatever for whatever reason yeah some some sort of guard up tough tough exterior yeah to me being able to engage with them on whatever significant basis and it's usually them telling me a story a lot of times it's someone showing me the photograph they took and on their phone or something or tell me about their grandchildren whatever it is those are those are moments to cherish i think we're geared to to experience those those moments as well because you know that they've been telling stories for millennia and and the the oldest written down stories must be predated uh from from writing by from what I've gathered, anywhere from fifty to six hundred thousand years. So the stories in, that that have been written down in these original texts that we can uh, find, um, they must have been told for many, many years ago. There was, you know, in these tribes, there'd be elders. That was their responsibility was to tell these stories, right? To to give them meaning in their life. They do it through may, maybe um, uh, polytheism, you know, or whatever, or through uh, some sort of re- religious lens, but. Um, like the telling of these stories, they, they, they click with people. It means something to them. And so that's, that's what, that's your role as a storyteller. You know, it's, it's, it's what you're doing. It's, it's fascinating. One of my favorite movies um, is the English patient. And in that movie, they are, I mean, it's a real complicated plot, which I love those kinds of things, but it was, it was, uh, you know, um, based in the World War II era of time in Northern Africa. And they were supposedly um, this team of c- cartographers, you know, mapping out mm-hmm. Northern Africa. Uh, but they were really spies. It comes that you come to find out. But anyway, they, they discovered this cave in the middle of the desert and not written, but images of people swimming in the middle of the desert so they called it the cave of swimmers well so even before the written word again going back to my saying i can i can pretty much say with a single image sometimes what i work to paint with words Mm -hmm. with those images here you are in the middle of the desert in northern africa with people swimming so that in and of itself was a story that was passed down and so so many stories like you're saying um, and people have told me i mean because i love to listen to other people tell stories yeah sometimes usually in that book particularly i always start out with where i am in that particular moment and that's usually an entree for someone else telling going into telling me their story gotcha yeah yeah and and so there's a there's an image that was from the this year's high school uh women's state championship and there was a reporter he he posted on facebook i just happened to scroll by i think it was a sponsored thing and there's an image of this uh junior i think 
or senior. Anyway, she's trying to inbound the ball, and it's her with a stoic view, but behind her is, I, I assume, the opposing team's um, uh, uh, fans, and they're all, like, you can t- tell that they're, like, yelling, you know, pointing fingers, all this stuff, trying to get in her head, and she's just sitting there stoic and calm. And I just, I found so much power in that image, I called the guy and bought the image. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's just, it, it's 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 going to be the first image I, I, I put up here in the studio, but I'm going to get it blown up. It's just, it's it's such a great image. I'll, I'll show you afterwards. I'd and, love to see. And show you yeah. what I you know, what I get out of it. Cause I don't want to go into detail cause you know, they can't see it. Right. So, um, but, but yeah, it's, it's so important. I mean that, and, and that is, I mean, the, the images are a story, you know, and, and of course it's, it's locked in time, you know, you've, you've captured a moment in time. What do you get out of, out of the, out of photography that you do? Interesting question. Um, so I entered, um, a photography contest this week for Smithsonian Magazine. Okay. And um, in order for me to come up, like, I'm not going to tell you every single image that I shoot Mm -hmm. is significant, but for me, if I'm going to take the time to get out with my camera and capture something, there's always a story behind the image. Well, for this particular I've entered other contests before, and I'm primarily a landscape photographer at this juncture. However, I'm also, because I am a storyteller, um, and and we were going to talk about my cotton project, Mm -hmm. Cast Nets and Cotton, this kind of good segue. Um, I have been out in cotton fields or at shops or in the tractor with many different farmers or growers. Um, Also included in that project is the um is the cast nets part of it which are the the people that farm the water on the coast Mm -hmm. and so when i'm going through literally hundreds of image files thinking because i you know you kind of look at what what they are looking for within smithsonian magazine it's telling a story so i pull these images where i was out for example in a field I've been in the tractor cab with a guy named Joe Grossman up in the Delta. And we're just, go, tra- you know, trucking along. He's young. He's probably younger than you. And um, all of a sudden, we, I mean, we were doing just fine. He was spraying his cotton. And then all of a sudden, there was a noise that was not normal. Well, I got to capture him getting off the tractor, looking at this big piece of metal that had come off somehow, he'd hit something, whatever. And I get him with this emotional connection with him, you know, doing this and and finally kind of going, well, that's just all part in the day of a farmer. I've got to get off the tractor now, go back to the shop and, and weld another piece of metal to go back on this tractor. Those are the kinds of things, I love capturing that. Usually I'm mm-hmm. alone. And I'm capturing something that I think to be beautiful or significant, whether it's a pelican being silly or yeah. to me or a beautiful cotton field. But I love being able to capture the emotion of someone in the midst of whatever it is that they do. And I've done that quite a few times. And there's and there's so much going into a moment like that. I, I worked on a farm in uh, North Texas. Uh, when I was in like the summer of my 10th grade, which is obviously the way a sophomore wants to spend his summer going, going into his junior right, year. But, right. um, but, but, but there's a lot of that. So, I mean, I, I can think and, um, you know, without having the image to, 
to look at, it's an inconvenience. Like just, just sticking with him, it's an inconvenience. It's going to cost him money, if not time for sure. Uh, depending on other things in his day, it sets them back or, or, these are things that he can't get get done today. He's got you on the tractor too. There's probably a, a feeling of a bit of embarrassment and you know, who knows how he normally reacts to those things. Well, so he's got to manage himself too, probably, you know, and of course, he's, yeah, he there's, said there's a couple a of ugly it. words and yeah. he said, Oh, I'm so sorry. I did that. And I said, if you hadn't have said those ugly words, I might've thought you were really abnormal. <laughs> so he let me, and again, this project has been an investment a lot of investment on my end, but yeah. the people, specifically a lot of men, there haven't been, a lot of women have told me their stories of back in the day when they picked cotton. We're kind of at the end of that whole time where these people can't, won't be around to tell these stories. I wished I'd, you know, started it 30 years ago, but I did not. Um, but mostly men, farmers, growers in the bro cotton broker business, uh, ag pilots, um, men who literally have checked cotton for bugs and, and disease for over 40 years. I mean, mm -hmm. people that have invested so much in my questions, which I started it. I mean, it's Cotton 101 is really what the project is because it affects all of us. And the Mississippi cotton story has affected all of us in some way, shape or form. So I wanted, I've just wanted to learn everything I could, but when I get to capture these people doing what they do, they let me, I'm like, forget the camera, forget me, just do your do. And I'm, I'm just going to try to capture what I can. Right. It's been an incredible journey as it has for anything else that I've ever like getting these guys that are, you know, selling shrimp off the back of a boat and what it takes for them to make a living. So them sharing the, their, their stories with me, it's just a, it's a privilege. And I'm very humbled by the fact that you know, just like in that book, so many of those stories, all those stories are people telling me their story and allowing me to then turn around and share it with the world, obviously. I feel a similar way about this because it's it's me just wanting to engage in you and, and what you're doing. I want you to tell your story, you know. There just happens to be something recording it, you know. <laughs> and, then, right. and then, of course, I, I, I get to share that. And, and, and again, um, and, and you share so much as well. Like, your your Facebook page has been so enlightening. Uh, be, you know, the stories that you tell on there, going through these different towns. There was one story of a town, and, and we're going to get back to the book for sure, but I, I, it, it just reminded me of this. And I forget the small town, but it was a booming town, but then the Mississippi River shifted and it Rodney. became a ghost town. Rodney, mm -hmm. Rodney. Can you talk about that? So, so the Mississippi River shifted. Is that like the Mississippi, the big river? <laughs> like the Mississippi River is, is a, it's, it's an entity in and of itself Okay. that defines so much of our nation, not just Mississippi. Yeah. Um, and it's some it's a it's an entity which i knew nothing about growing up because it didn't affect me i mean i didn't understand rivers or lakes i knew about the bay and the gulf right but i didn't know anything about um other bodies of water and everybody wants to be on some kind of water yeah yeah well um i believe and i'm gonna get my dates wrong but rodney was a major port on the Mississippi River, um, north or south. And then, and I, I want to say, I want to say it was 1867, the river just 
did what it's done so many times before the Corps of Engineers really got involved. It shifted literally its course two miles away from this port city of Rodney. Here's an impossible question. How does that happen? Because it's such an impossible, you cannot tame that river. Yeah. I mean, that's why the Mississippi Delta, the Louisiana Delta, and the Arkansas Delta have such rich alluvial it's an alluvial plain more than delta a river the river delta is actually at the you know the very bottom of louisiana where Mm. it actually empties but um it's it's just like i can't quite comprehend one of the best books to explain what you just asked would be rising tide and it's uh by a guy last name barry but um it's all about how the river has been tamed after the 1927 flood, but it gives a lot of pre-history, pre, you know, predating the 1927 flood, which was horrific. Um, it's it, it like how many cubic feet of water go at whatever rate. And I know I probably did that in physics, but I couldn't explain it. It's just, it's an, un- I mean, you think about it, Come, it's coming all the way from Canada. Yeah, yeah. And all, it's, it is the river basin to the Continental Divide and to the, you know, Shenandoah Valley on the eastern part of the United States. So when you start considering how much water is, especially in a year like this where we've yeah. had so much rain, yeah, what happens? And so, um, you know, the ruins of Windsor are not so far north of there. And that that was all part of, like Mark Twain supposedly used to walk on the roof of the Windsor. Windsor. That's where you see all these big columns. Yeah. Been shot so many times. But it's, as a photographer, I don't think anybody could be more fascinated by what was there with those columns. It's just an unbelievable, it was probably the biggest antebellum Actually, I don't think it was built before the war. It was right after the war it was finished, but it burned to the ground because of somebody dropping their cigarette back in the day in the late in the 1890s. But he would walk on the roof of that structure, which was really way up there, and watch the boats go down the river because it was that close. Now that wouldn't be able to happen. So to think that a force of nature which the river is sure. is as powerful as it is to change I mean, Rodney was almost the capital of Mississippi, and now it's almost gone. There are just a few people that are really trying to preserve the history because yeah. of the significance that it has. Yeah, it's amazing. It's it's absolutely amazing. So 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 back to your book. The, so cotton cotton cast nets, right? Cast nets and cotton. Cat, cast nets and cotton. What what motivated you to write uh, about cotton in, in in Mississippi? I um. I wanted to understand how Mississippi was in the middle of a global economy in 1860, just before the Civil War broke out. Um, I wanted to understand a little bit about, uh, or as much as I could, about how slavery played its part in that picture. and. It really started pretty simply, quote unquote, simply with those two questions. And I've dedicated myself since the late 2017 to discover the answers to that question. And in doing so, uh, I mean, I've I've realized I'm a geek. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I've gone back and read Diabrovilles because I wanted to go back to 1699 because, of course, everything goes back 
in Ocean Springs is sixteen ninety nine. Really, in the, the whole of the Louisiana Territory, because that's when D'Iberville actually, you know, said we're claiming this for King Louis the Fourteenth mm-hmm. and for France. Um, but I've read, I mean, I've read D'Iberville's diaries of how they figured out for sure that they could not like where the Mississippi River was because at the time there were five river deltas and I mean explorers were incredible it was like you know discovering the wild wild west which is like uh, Jack Davis the one that wrote the Gulf um, compares discovering the Gulf region to what went on in the wild wild west that there were I mean it was such a I can't even imagine because if you see natural terrain, you know, there was no beach. We've got man-made beaches. So how in the heck did they get up the river? How did they get, I mean, discovering, doing anything on the Gulf would have been just, yeah, really totally committed. Yeah. I mean, all, all these, all this, um, like think of, think of getting like walking through a random path that you carve by yourself off of a hiking trail in the national seashore. Like you're not easily getting through that. There's vines, everything else. There's poison ivy, poison oak. Oh, by the way, there's brown recluses. There's black widows and brown widows. That's a thing. You know, you got water moccasins there. You know, you've got all sorts of alligators, all sorts of things that are going to cut your life short. And they still braved a path through there, created a settlement. Well, and- ultimately, Diaberville died because he contracted. I believe it was. Um, yellow fever on his third voyage and he had been an explorer since way back in the 18 i mean the seven sixteen sixties. 60s and what is really interesting to me when you start looking historically at this region is that from 1682 when la salle came down the mississippi no one had attempted to ever traverse the river going up so that was what king louis he wanted to expand his territory and of course you know you're fighting against i mean working against the british and the spanish to yeah. they who were doing the same and so in 1698 king louis sent i mean uh Diaberville went to france and king louis said okay i want you to go over there and you know, found it. I want you to go down that big river again and figure out where you're going to start a settlement at the base of the river because they knew it would be great for trade and for expansionism. And so they go. And from all that I have been able to gather with the research I have done, there's no mention of them sounding the Biloxi Bay. However, they um LaSalle, okay so let me go back LaSalle in 1682 when he came down the river had left unknowingly a letter of kind of authenticity that he indeed had left it with one of the indigenous peoples along the river so no one knows that letter's there so when Diaberville goes is commissioned to come back over here in 1698 he goes uh I don't know, you know, where we're going to do this. So he goes back to France, gets more money, and then he, along with at least 400 other men, are commissioned with four four other boats, five boats, two of which in 1699 or late 1698 were anchored out on Ship Island. Well, they left in two big canoes to go find the river and a place to build a settlement. 
And because of the five river deltas, it was, you couldn't know that, um, that it was or wasn't the river. Yeah. So Diaberville et al. start going up the river and they finally get to a place where there was an indigenous um, tribesman who said, well, look, here's the letter. Cause they didn't know if it was the river or not. They didn't know what it was. They didn't know if it was the Mississippi or some other river. Right. So the indigenous tribesman hands a letter that LaSalle had written almost 20 years before and says, this is, this is the Mississippi river. So then they go back down and go, there's no place down here because it was too, I mean, the sandy soil and everything at the base of the, uh, the Mississippi. So that's when they came back and went out from Ship Island and came into the Biloxi Bay and ended up saying, okay, we're going to do Fort Marlboro here in Ocean Springs. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which I, from this is actually, I think in that book uh, over there, but uh, talked about how they landed there and they called that area Biloxi. The uh, Biloxi. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so it, it got its name to Ocean Springs when the springs were discovered, the healing springs later on. So this was at some point, yeah, Biloxi. We, yeah. We, we call it, uh, yeah, you know, that's been a big contention yeah. between Biloxi and Ocean Springs for sure. years, but there's too much evidence that probably everything that I've been able to gather, the Lover's Lane, Cherokee Glen area, there are a lot of uh, artifacts that have been discovered that that's probably where they actually had originally put Fort Marpaw. But in reading all of, um, not all, I shouldn't say all, but a good bit of Diaberville's um, diaries, Every and it had obviously had to be translated into English. Mm-hmm. How they lived and from day to day and uh, what they ate and really, you know, they're they're only. I mean, they would they would. One of the things I remember was they would put lard in a pot of boiling water, and that's what they ate. And unless the indigenous people happened along or as they went along, and they gave them, you know, dried bear meat or dried whatever deer deer meat or whatever. I mean, it was a very, it wasn't a glorious thing. Like, no. you know, there, um, one of the, um, I've got a friend named Frank Janka who has painted, um, he was involved in the 300th anniversary of the discovery of, yeah. you know, this. I went to that. Did you? Back in the day. Yeah. yeah. Did you? Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. Th- this was, um, between France and, uh, did you go, did you go to France? Uh, no, no, no. This, um, you're, you're the they, celebration. Yeah. Yeah. Down well, in, uh, I have a picture Biloxi. of me somewhere wearing an Indian outfit oh, okay. with my little white skin. We had, uh, all this paint on us, but it was, it was a lot of fun. But Frank actually was involved with a 50 person continuum from the coast and then there were 50 people from uh, France, and I can't tell you what the uh, where the exact place was, but Frank painted uh, several different renditions in yeah. his head of what it would have been like, and he recently gave me uh, a print, a signed print of something that he had done with them coming ashore, and you can see uh, what the Biloxi or Pascagoula Indians kind of hiding in the brush, and yeah. uh, you know, just a great picture literally of what it had to have been just so i can't imagine how primitive it would have been yeah yeah for sure So anyway all of that to say how did that have anything to do with the cotton story they brought cotton and planted cotton with when they started fort maupaw and they had 150 men that they left and within two years 75 of those men had passed away from disease or starvation they just couldn't make it sure. they brought corn as well they shipped all those guys to mobile but a few stayed so that would have been diaberville's third story third voyage 
in that third trip, there was a man, and I'm going to get it wrong. I think it wasn't uh, the Krebs. Fa- it was. It's it's where the Krebs family originated, and the Krebs family built what is now known to be the oldest, uh, and it's dated via. Um, I think I'm going to say this word right, but don't hold me to it. Dendrochronology, okay. which okay. is looking at um, the age of a given piece of wood. Okay. And there is the what used to be the old Spanish fort, they called it. Now they call it the um, La Pointe Krebs House in Pascagoula. Mm-hmm. And that came out of one of the explorers who came back with Villa in his third or his second journey. And... That now is the oldest known structure in the whole of the Mississippi Territory, even before Natchez. Really? So the coast, and they had a working cotton gin 25 years prior to uh, Eli Whitney's in 1793. So our cotton story on the coast is as significant as the cotton story would be off the coast. Yeah, that's incredible. You know, so I can definitely see the motivation. I'll, I'll say this. So the... The food around here that that's that's famous shrimp crawfish you know oysters flounder bullet all this stuff they're all bottom feeders and and it's almost as if as if you know people back in that day were just so desperate so desperate for, for food they're like look we'll take it to bottom feeder whatever and we'll just try and make it good you know? and they did <laughs> and that's exactly what and they, did. they did in a place that was uh unforgiving in a place that had many things out there to kill you, and of course the bugs, and of course the weather was terrible. You know, France, France for most of the year is a pretty nice place to be. Uh-huh, yep, <laughs> you know? yep. So yeah, it, it it is just absolutely incredible. So, a so buddy- the cast nets part, back to your oh, question. Oh yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, don't mean to interrupt, but, no, you're good. but the cast nets part of that story uh, comes from the fact that the Krebs family, um, LaPointe Krebs family grew cotton. We know we have knowledge of records exist to support the fact that they did, in fact, have a working cotton gin, which tells us that they were growing cotton somewhere in North Jackson County, probably, or the bottom of George. I'm not sure. I don't have any ability to find that out. I haven't been able to get that question answered. But if they were growing cotton, ginning cotton, and they have a spinning wheel in their museum, then we know they were spinning cotton. Someone then was getting that spun cotton and making nets. So all of the cast nets, scoop nets, any kind of net you want to come up with on the Mississippi coast that was used back in the day until the early 1950s was manufactured of cotton. Really? Yes. And that's when synthetic fibers came out, which were more practical for... um, for a lot of reasons they were more durable they were lighter weight i mean mm-hmm. that goes on and on but to think i remember my dad having um cotton nets when i was a little girl so it didn't it's not like synthetics took over with by storm they took over but it was a minute before they yeah probably through just natural attrition in the marketplace so into the 60s probably were still using cotton and i i recently saw a cotton net in a restaurant and i was like oh <gasps> Oh my gosh because i can't find any if anybody has one i'd love to be able to photograph it but it's a lot heavier of course the water you know it may, the yeah. water is absorbed but it's an incredible story because then into the 1800s my mother's family was farming cotton up in central mississippi so the the my book is very personal in that 
we all use cotton. We all had knowledge of oh, Q-tips or cotton balls. Mm-hmm. But I, until I started this project, I did not have a clue how much cotton really affected and was and that how much our state was built on. Um, that's how we got to the center of a global global economy in 1860. So literally, yeah. we had more millionaires per capita or as many as New York City in wow. 1860. Yeah, that's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. So so what, I, I guess the natural proliferation of, uh, you know, cotton being the sort of basis of the agrarian economy of Mississippi was just kind of expanded because, well, the French were making cotton here at some point it became a practical export maybe actually as far as i know i can't tie those two together okay Uh, my knowledge is uh my understanding and everything that i've done research towards is that um in 1793 which would have been the same year that whitney applied for his patent that's more well known than obviously what the krebs had uh until then our primary cash crop along the and it would have been along the river because that's where you had they had the primary trade to go into new orleans because the french the spanish and the english were somehow present within new orleans the spanish had control at the time but in 1793 uh the tobacco crop which had been the primary cash crop was kind of nixnayed because the spanish no longer wanted to pay the high prices that the mississippi uh, or and and across the river to the Louisiana Mississippi farmers with the Louisiana Delta as well, um, and the del our Delta was not cleared, but only ten percent of our Mississippi Delta was cleared for the planting of cotton by the outbreak of the Civil War. So this mm. was real, a real small area that we're really talking about in the big picture, um, and so tobacco was no longer they they weren't buying because i get i don't know they must have been, they obviously were still smoking but they must have been getting it for cheaper out of the carolinas so then the cat the farmers switched and they went to try they tried indigo which is what is made the color for blue jeans okay. well that crop failed because it was polluting the waters even back then and um because of whatever infestation they had they just couldn't grow it and so all of a sudden they go oh cotton grows let's try that and so they did but by 18 even by 1800 or yeah the turn of the century at 1800 we still the if you look at census data it still doesn't report that there was significant it still says zero bales of any exported cotton and so I'll tell you this one more story and then I'll be quiet. I get no, all excited. No, you're good, you're good. No, so this, is, so this, this in 1803, and I, I can only verify this by a couple of sources. So if anybody ever has any information, I'd love to hear. There was a man named Walter Burling who was commissioned by a General Wilkerson who was in the U.S. Army. Burling was commissioned to go to Mexico on a secret mission. And... Um, Burling returned with, I think this is really cool. He returned with cotton seed stuffed dolls, which maybe that's when they started, you know, sneaking stuff over the border in cotton. Hey. <laughs> and so the story goes that this um, uh, Dr. Rush Nut that was actually from natchez rodney area mm-hmm. um then began to develop some of the first gmo cotton and which which wound up being 
Pettit Golf, P-E-T-I-T, Golf Cotton, which okay. was the primary GMO cotton that was grown all over the Southeast until the war. What was different about this cotton? It was uh, more resistant to rot, more resistant to um, bug infestation, and supposedly easier to pick. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, when you, re- when, and I mean, this could cause a whole big stir, but um, when you start talking about non-GMO, there's there's almost nothing that you could really prove is non-GMO. So, right, right. Yeah. yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, it's, it's uh, man, it's, there's lots to unpack there. Well, the first thing I'll say is that, so I learned more about kind of the landing of Diaberville from a metal detector buddy of mine. So, really? Yeah, Interesting. So, so so what he does, and, and he's um, he's detected all along, this mower here is a, I hear it, yeah. is a surprise, yeah. But uh, it's a small bit of grass we find. Anyway, so he's done metal detecting all all around the uh, west end of, of Ocean Springs and found numerous things. And so I actually had, had him on the podcast. He talked about how, how Fort Marple, again, the same thing he said is probably on that northern area, right? Yeah, right. Uh, but it, it, it was a... Uh, Eventually, it turned into an encampment uh, for for prisoners as well. Uh, had a, had apparently a lot of different uses uh, throughout the years. So yeah. Well, you know, um, Fort Massachusetts on Ship Island mm-hmm. was a prisoner of war camp during the Civil War for uh, slaves that, for whatever reason, had to be. I don't know what. I never have. I don't know any information other than what I just said, but the big guns on ship island were some of the first if not the first of their kind and don't ask me anything about a gun because i don't know too much but it supposedly spun excuse me spun the um turret? cannonball huh. it, well the turret did spin but the but supposedly the cannonball were able that it, it's a better trajectory maybe okay. if the if the if the whatever the spins yeah but they never used those guns until after the war was over so i find that to be very interesting as well um and and so and and you know there are all these stories of of what happened on ship island and slaves that came in and raped and pillaged i don't know i mean there's you know there's all kind of lore that you know some of it could be provable some of it may not be but i just love the the whole um possibilities of what what kind of i know fran McNabb is one of my uh high school senior uh comp teachers not comp um literature teachers and she writes uh love stories and one of hers is based out on ship island during that period of time my goal right now and i'm i'm having a hard time making this happen is to get a group of um pro photographers um along with myself to go out to Ship Island on a moonless night and shoot the Milky Way and light paint the fort from a, you know, but the Gulf Islands National Seashore has been not so willing to help so much. So really? I, but yeah, but I, cause you have to be able to have permission to get on the island and, you know, cause it is a, a park, but I've got quite a few really great photographers who want to help me make that. Ha- it's just about the challenge and we, yeah. we give the image to, the park service mm-hmm. but um it would be the challenge to do it i wanted to use it in my book because i feel like it's part of the whole story of diaberville coming forward even to the civil war yeah yeah for sure yeah I, that 
That sounds like an amazing project, and 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 I do hope that uh, you get to do that. Um, Maybe so. Yeah, whoever's at the National Seashore. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> well, I think it's higher ups that I need to get permission from, and I can't. I, I can't get to those people. They're a little higher than I am. Yeah. <laughs> We'll give them the image. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it really seems like a win-win for them. Uh, okay, so, so, so where else does, does that story go about cotton? So to start with, why, did I even, why do I even care about agriculture when, I, when I'm a Coast Girl um, is kind of lead into what my current book is that I'm working on. While I have not found a publisher for the Castanets and Cotton book, I hope I do, because um, it's really a story worth telling in word and image. But and they and it may be two different stories, one in text and one in just image. But that all starts because I fell in love with a farmer when I was eighteen and left that farmer at twenty, telling him, "You're not enough of a spiritual leader for me." Only to feel guilty for those words forever, and uh, had to tell him I was sorry at fifty. Mm -hmm. And it ended up that I had a torrid affair with this farmer in the Mississippi Delta. Um, That book has been written as though it were a diary. And now I am fictionalizing that book to save, uh, what do you call it, to protect the innocent? Yeah, sure. (laughs) Um, So that book is going to be called Diary of a Paramour in the Mississippi Delta. And uh, it's a great story. It's a story, uh, again, of um, if you don't have a little bit of pain and loss, you can't. Uh, have a great story um, yeah. that farmer died and um, and I've had to since apologize to all the people involved because I'm really like I start out telling how I became a Christian when I was seven years old and how much my faith means to me and I can tell you with surety God does not include um, adultery in one of those things that he is gonna honor however um, it happened and the people that have been that were most hurt by that story and um, I've had to ask for forgiveness so and that story comes out like he taught me everything that there was that he could teach me about every row crop except cotton (laughs) so then I got really interested in um, in learning about that yeah okay makes sense makes sense so when you're looking at this story about about cotton in in mississippi inevitably you've got to talk about uh race and slavery uh that that has to do it because it it's it's widely understood and accepted yeah yeah, that 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 this that the cotton industry was built uh, on the on the backs of slaves so did you encounter that in your story i did Mm -hmm. um actually one of the first things i wrote and delved into with zest and zeal for wanting to know the truth was did white people pick cotton too because Mm -hmm. statistically um i mean these are this is this is very easily accessed knowledge uh information from um census data that i've studied so uh and i've also studied the constitutional congress in 1787 and how what was going on then with um, with the whole story of slavery. So if you go back that far, when the Constitutional Congress was written in 1787, and it was 55 men who basically hold up in the Pennsylvania, uh, um, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania courthouse, which came to be known as Independence Hall, 
they hold up from isn't that the right word when I mean, you just yeah yeah, yeah. from uh, it sounds not right I want to say held but it's hold uh, from the middle of May in 1787 and this of course was after the uh, Revolutionary War right right so 55 men for from May June July August almost four months were just every single day in that place hammering out what they wanted how they wanted to build our country because mm-hmm. if you if you and I've had to go back and you may know this maybe not maybe your listeners do or don't know but when we declared our independence from England we no longer had to pay taxes to uh, a tyrannical king in England but we were not united under any flag right so when the constitutional congress said okay we've got to we've got to bring us as united states mm-hmm. of america um that was a diff i can't even imagine how difficult it was and what these men went through on trying to form a republic under a, a you know in a democracy which they're different though I can, i'm not going to try to even get into the difference in those no, two no, terms but but what i was going to say is only 39 of those men signed the constitution mm-hmm. in included in that whole deal it came down to what we were going to do with slavery and um south carolina and georgia or north carolina and georgia were the only two only two true southern states besides virginia and they were the two states that said we're not signing if you don't include slavery well men like patrick henry and thomas jefferson and benjamin franklin were not present for that that whole congress which to me is just like that's unbelievable you mean any part of the four months no okay no uh, Jefferson was in France. Patrick Henry, and he didn't believe in slavery. Patrick Henry didn't believe in slavery. They both had slaves, but they didn't believe in slavery. And then, so it's a weird position to take, then, right? Isn't it though? Yeah, isn't it though? So, but but again, uh, a contemporary writer just recently said to me, "What were they going to do? Free their slaves and tell them to go get a job when you know they're a generation out of the jungles of Africa, and here they are in a." I mean, it would be like when you start really putting that, like you and I were talking about earlier, putting yeah, those kinds the context of, of the times. Absolutely. Yeah. Then what could they do? They were tr- they were trying to do the best that they could for the people that. I mean, yeah, we know people were ugly to slaves, but not everybody was. There mm-hmm. would have been a mass uprising if everybody had been horrific to their. There just would have been no way. They weren't chained together to work in the fields. I can't explain all that. I know chattel slavery is wrong and we all agree on that however when you look at the context of 1787 and what was going on we already had 700,000 slaves in this country so when they decided to let that and to me it was under the cover of darkness that they said okay that's the only way we're going to get anything passed because tobacco was a big cash crop in North Carolina and Georgia at the time as well as Virginia and they did have a lot of slaves you know to say that our all of the economy was based on a slave population i don't know i can't come up with that definitively i can say it played a large role but 
by 1860, when we were the Mississippi was the center of a global economy, per census data, we had four million slaves in the United States. 467,000 of those slaves were Mississippians, were in Mississippi. So that's roughly what, what percentage? 13%. 13. But Mississippi produced 1.25 million bales of cotton, at least, uh, in 18, of the 4 million total bales produced, which is about 33%. So where, where did that number, where is that number made up? The only thing that I, there's nothing specifically written, but in doing all of the data research that I've done, the only way that I can make those numbers work is to say there were a lot of white people, probably yeoman farmers that picked cotton as well. An interesting fact that I find in everything I read is that New York was the, New York City was the capital of the South because 35% of all cotton revenues ended up in New York. Um, They were the ones that were, um, New York, New Yorkers and the business center in New York were having the slave ships built and sending them out. So there, there, we as a nation were responsible for, yeah. um, enslaved Africans that belonged to people. So the whole, and I mean, I've listened to written, read, I mean, not written, but read and talked to many historians who know way more than I do. But when you look at the hard data, it's really difficult to um, make any sense other than there were a lot of yeoman farmers. As a photographer, I say, I'm always like, where are the photographs of the white people and the black people in the field? Is that what's missing? It's grossly missing. Yeah. But as a photographer, I can only assume, and this is totally an assumption, that it, it just wasn't as good of a shot to get white people in the middle of a white field. I don't know. I would. So I wonder if there's maybe they didn't want to be I'm, photographed because, because it was because, a scourge. That's very large. Cause, yeah. Because the, what I've written for that, that book, the piece that I wrote for my book, Cast Nets and Cotton, is called Human Ownership, the Unspoken Scourge of the Constitutional Congress. So for me when I look and this is data this is not me this is me repeating and citing data from other people we were all responsible for America and slavery it was not a southern thing it wasn't a Mississippi thing Mississippi Mm -hmm. didn't even become a state until 1817 Um, we all need to take responsibility for what happened and then we all need to join together have conversations which I was telling you earlier my cotton story and what I've learned about cotton and slavery has opened up a million conversations with whites and blacks alike. And I've never had anyone not be willing to talk about it. It's just one of, and it's like, let's have a conversation. Let's just talk about it, get it on the table and then go from there. And so it's all about people being willing to discuss issues. I don't, doesn't matter what it is. I mean, you know, pick any hot topic, abortion. I mean, they could be political, but really when it comes down to it, it's people at the end of the day. It's about how, well, how does this issue affect you as a woman? How does this issue affect you as a black person? How does this issue affect somebody else with mental illness? You know, whatever it is, it's always about talking about something and throwing down what you think might be true and coming together and like, how, well, how does that make you feel? 
like you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and I can understand that even having the conversation, the assertion of that um, whites pick cotton, and if if we can accept the notion that whites pick cotton, we might even be able to accept the notion that maybe they pick cotton alongside blacks and slaves. Well, it's know? a fact. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of the stories that are dying, which is why I'm so passionate about telling this story, it's not just about the slavery story is part of the story but it like i said it goes all the way back to diaberville and when cotton was introduced and then like this is a, st a stat that i find staggering that in 1760 90 percent of the world's textiles were made of wool by 1860 before the outbreak of the civil war 90% of the world's textiles were cotton with a 99% reduction in cost because once the gin became readily available, and that did happen with Whitney's um, application for a patent, mm -hmm. it took a, a delinter, a good delinter. There are about six to eight seeds in one little, not a bowl, but one of the, um, oh shoot, I'm going to get all my nomenclature bulb? wrong. Like a bulb of cotton? Well, the bowl is the whole thing, but okay. one um, section of the bowl, I can't believe I can't pull up that word, but there are about six or eight seeds in each section. And in each sec each bowl of cotton has four to five whatever sections. Okay. Whatever those are, yeah. So if you think about, if, if you've ever, I mean, it's really interesting to try to separate the fiber from six to eight seeds in each section so a day i've actually done this so 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 i went and grabbed cotton we we drove by a, a field in georgia and, and and i'd never seen one and of course probably shouldn't say this but so i pulled over went over and grabbed some and just and just kind of looked so you at were it trespassing don't don't rather, say that rather ask permission <laughs> i mean uh, uh, uh what do you call it um not permission but uh forgiveness them yeah yeah yeah, yeah. There you go. yeah i kind of been my that yeah i can say i've done the same thing several times yeah but i just wanted to see it you know but uh but but yeah so you're right yeah it's it's uh it's not an easy thing it's certainly very meticulous so and just time so you get a perspective um when when whitney's gin came out it was pretty it's a pretty simple machine it's kind of like um I mean, the story goes that he was looking in a chicken yard and he wanted to get um, the chicken. Well, instead he came up, or the fox wanted to get the chicken, instead he came up with all the feathers. So it's really the same kind of principle to separate the fibers. You had to have something to rake the fiber away from the seed. Yeah. So a good delinter could produce a pound of cotton a day with gin, with uh, Whitney's gin once it came along. 100 pounds per day so it was exponentially increased yeah. as far as what the production was so then if you think about 99 percent reduction in cost and a total flip-flop on the i mean people having cotton fiber versus wool in 100 years less right at 100 years yeah and, and it also reduced the uh the need for slaves because slaves would be the ones doing that and so now you've got this scalable thing that reduces your labor uh, need as well which you would either put that towards either increasing the size of your farm or whatever but well i mean it's there's not like you're like hey i don't need you you're you're fired you know yeah along wasn't the and nature. then and then another hundred years goes by and 
the need for workers in the field decreased because of the mechanization of cotton. Mm. So it there were these hundred year spans in the story. It totally changed the socioeconomic picture. Sure, not just in the South, but in the whole of the United States. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. That's an amazing story. Yeah, my problem is, uh, I mean, I haven't even gotten to the part where I shot, you know. Um, shot. I took pictures of. I followed four growers around the whole state of Mississippi. Four, two in the Delta and two in the East Side of Mississippi. The whole summer, the growing season of 2018. So I haven't even gotten there on what it takes now to grow cotton and the people that are still invested and the ones that are generational, just like they're generational fishermen yeah. on the coast. It's a commercial fishermen. It's just really, it's an incredible story. And I don't think I'm good enough editor to say what does and doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was because I'd probably have it finished by now. Everything's yeah. significant to me. All of that story is. Well, and, and that's the thing, like... It... I was while I was running yesterday. I, I I had a thought, just a random thought about history and what is history and what is its utility. Because there's there's this seems to be a movement of silencing these stories in history, and history to me is kind of like at work we have these thing called continuity binders, right? They exist to say, hey, this is what works. This is how we do X Y or B X Y or Z to be in compliance and avoid unnecessary pain, right? Uh, it transcends any person in that position. So it's obviously a resource, but what is history? Just that this is what happened in history. You've got to be made aware of it. You've got to be made aware of the mistakes so that when something, when technology or society evolves, we can look back at history and say, okay, we're kind of moving in this direction. It was tried here. We do not need to go down that path. Right. But by ignoring that and not allowing yourself to be aware that these things existed and atrocity like slavery existed, you run the risk of, you know, making a proxy for slavery that that just takes another form well you know i look at it um i mean i think they're calling that cancel culture i think there are a whole bunch of terms yeah a bunch of terms a yeah. bunch of different terms and i and i i don't i'm not gonna say i pride myself because then it sounds pretty haughty but i do attempt on a large scale to listen to the whole picture I mean, by and large, it's not a secret. I'm a conservative for most things. Mm -hmm. I mean, not, you know. Yeah, same. But I have been called an open-minded conservative. So I try to, I don't want to put that wall up right there. Or, the, you know, I don't, I, I want to be able to hear what the other side, whatever that is. It doesn't matter if it, we're talking about politics or, or, or any part of it. Like, but history is history. And Shelby Foote, um, I was telling you earlier yeah, about, yeah. Uh, about his million-word work called The Civil War, which was made into a documentary by Ken Burns back in 85 or 87. I don't remember which year. It's incredible. One of the opening images of, and it's all images that are put together with, with commentary and music. It's just an incredible work to me, a body of work, because it's not just uh, foots telling the story it's also images that that the photographers have long been lost and forgotten mm -hmm. but one of the most poignant images to me is like within the first 10 or 15 minutes is a family who has a large house and so you know i i mean the assumption would be we're in the south we're growing cotton. I have no idea where yeah. the image was taken. Yeah. But it has the fam the white family and then 
the blacks who were supposedly slaves. I'm a, I mean, that's this is all an assumption. Yeah, yeah because this they, is all the Im- they, implicit representation of, yeah. Right. Yeah. But those slaves, if that's what they were, which I'm assuming they were, uh, were dressed in just as much... I'm, I'm not. I mean, for lack of a better way to put it, almost finery like the whites. So they included um, their <clears throat> slaves as part of their family. Just obviously, just lesser, like a a, a lower class or, or some degree. I mean, you know, I mean, it's it's tough it, to peel it was back the amazing to of, me that within this family portrait, those slaves were supposedly included. And in, I mean, I just found that to be highly intriguing do you think that that representation is the exception or the rule i mean what i think and what's reality may be two different things fair enough i don't see how the south or the north because if you if you read history the north had they had slaves too it's not like we had a corner on the market but if in fact the answer to that question would be that it's not a pretty decent representation no matter i mean only one in five southerners that you know helped seceded from the union and fought for the south owned slaves and only and i'm don't hold me to this number but i'm pretty sure 2270 and this is a stat from um a census stat only it was so it was less than 2500 total people that would have identified themselves with the confederacy or the southern states owned more than 100 slaves that in the big picture is very nominal compared to the way it's represented mm. there were a lot of poor like yeoman farmers in that period of time expand on on, on what that means for 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 people who don't know you yeoman said, farming yeah. was uh it was the a white family who worked for themselves i see they wanted a self-sustaining situation and there have been several things written uh about well they they only they only took care of themselves but that doesn't make any sense because if you read the bigger picture, I mean, they still had to buy staples. I mean, they couldn't produce flour, and I mean, they didn't all have sugar farm, sugar cane, and so if you really look at history and you look at the whole of history, I mean, there were. It's not difficult to come up with the fact that there had to be a lot of whites who also were out in the fields even though i can't document that with images yeah if you read the whole of history which i've been like i said i've dedicated the last four plus years of my life to reading and looking because i i don't want to like i don't have any need to make it up Mm -hmm. there's a lot written on slavery but if you go back and look at we get along too well I mean, we really do. I don't Mississippi. We we don't have we didn't have a bunch of riots last summer. We stuck together. I mean, we lived together. We have the highest black population in the country of any state, mm-hmm. and yet we don't we don't fuss with each other. Yeah. For the I mean, yeah, there were horrible things that happened back during civil rights. That doesn't take a thing away from it, but by and large. If you look at the population of Mississippi, we we're 
we're just who we are. I mean, we don't we don't sit around and fuss about stuff all the time. I don't see it that way. Yeah, I, you know, with with regard to the way that they um, were dressed in that representation, it it strikes me at least as possible that that um, the way the way the slaves that you owned looked might have been a point of uh, what would you say contention? Stati- well, status. You know, so so I can even take care of my slaves really well. That's how much money I have because the slaves might have been, might have even been viewed as maybe something extra, and so by dressing them nice, you were showing off to some degree, you know, what they that's look a, like. That's which, a possibility. Which I mean, it's it's no different than keeping up with the Joneses with a nice car, right? In my opinion, again, I I I, I, I mean, seen I can't this, answer so, the question. Yeah, I don't course. know. Of course, uh, I just know from a stat standpoint that there were white people in the fields too that are not represented with images until like I've got a few that were represented up in Sunflower County in Mississippi in the 40s and the 50s because there was a project up there where they had pretty much an all white community that they 40 acres and a mule is what it is what it's called but um where white people were given 40 acres a mule and a couple of fruit trees and they had to figure out so they had large families so they I mean Cotton is a very labor-intensive crop. Yeah. Um, then and now, even though with with uh, mechanization, it's still a very labor-intensive. You still have to go over the ground that any cotton is planted on almost. And believe me, I've sat with people who did it by hand, and I've sat, I've been up in the tractor and talked to them. How many times do you have to go over each piece of ground in a growing season? It's pretty much the same, which is kind of mind-boggling. You have way less labor because you're doing it with mech, with a you know a tractor or a picker or whatever. Yeah, but the but passes are the same. The passes are the same, so it's still a very expensive proposition and a very labor-intensive proposition to grow cotton. It's very to me. I'm I'm so awe in awe by the people that continue to grow cotton, especially in these years when we don't get a dollar. I mean, you know, yeah. one of the best books that I've ever read about, especially this is kind of a little segue, Clearing the Cotton, uh, Clearing the Delta for the Planting of Cotton is called Dollar Cotton. It's written by John Faulkner, who's William's brother. Okay. And it's a novel, but it's really, really interesting about what they had to do in order to clear. It was a swamp. So you can imagine draining a swamp, cutting these big, this virgin timber, it was a it was a daunting task, but of course it's some of the richest land in the world. The Delta is known for, and that's another thing. The Mississippi Delta land is known for some of the richest, best grown, best cotton in the world. Mm. Short short staple cotton versus long staple cotton, which do two different things. And the mm. re, like, long staple is grown more in um, West Texas and California, Arizona now. But back in the day, the short staple cotton, uh, and that's what we grow in Mississippi. We don't have the whatever it takes to grow the long staple, and don't ask me to get into the details of that one. But that's <laughs> <No>, fine. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, one's used for one product, and one's used for another. Wow. Well, it sounds like an amazing project. You know, it certainly does. Now, we we talked a bit about keeping a, about understanding the context of the times now I, I know recently you 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 held a dinner which i thought was fantastic um i, w- I wasn't invited but just the whole concept uh, next time yeah next time there you go <laughs> but uh um yeah it was, it's called a jeffersonian dinner yes talk about that what is a jeffersonian dinner 
Uh, well, I didn't know anything about it either okay. until my oldest daughter, who lives in Durango, suggested that because um, I, I, I've been on the ba- the ba- uh, board advisory board for Back Bay Mission, which is a organization nonprofit to um, help the homeless population in Harrison County, Ocean Springs, and Diaberville. So I've been on that board for two years, and about a year ago, she, my daughter, and I. Um, started talking about it and she's real involved in community efforts in durango colorado um she's also a writer so i said well what is that i'm like you and so she said mom just google it so i did and i started looking into what it was how it might work and basically when jefferson thomas jefferson was at monticello he obviously was a big entertainer he was a foodie for sure um it's real interesting to look at all of the trips he made to and from france and mm-hmm. so he he thought he's i guess i kind of feel like he's my kindred spirit from another era okay. he didn't want to just have some chit chatty you know dinner party so he would send a predetermined question um to be discussed corporately at the dinner so i thought wow, that's my kind of thing because I've been to a lot of fundraisers and shoot, sometimes people never even want to talk about anything. Yeah, They just want to chit-chat or look at their phones or whatever. And I'm like, oh my gosh, no, 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 no. I want to get to know somebody. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, the predetermined question for this dinner was, what is a weed? It is, and it's a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson. What is a weed? It is a plant whose virtue has yet to be discovered. And so this was within the context of talking about homelessness. However, it was a general question. So um, I have, I live in a little bitty house, but I have a really great um, screened in porch. And we set a lot of different people and businesses were involved in my being able to put on the dinner because it was a really, it was a, I mean, it was a really nice dinner by my choosing because that's what I wanted to do. Um, I mean, so many things were donated, but we sat down and had a very, I I had sent out, a lot of emails were sent out of me telling what the schedule was going to be. And I had an image of some weeds that I had taken picture of 10 years ago in the Delta. Beautiful. So it was interesting. Everyone came prepared to discuss what is a weed, a plant whose virtue has yet to be discovered. And so all in the context of homelessness, but it wasn't necessarily, you know, it was really about the discussion, about getting to know the people that were there, Mm -hmm. community involvement. And I think probably one of the most significant answers to me was a weed is one of the first anything that shows up after something devastating like a fire or a hurricane or whatever you want to say weeds pop up long before anything else before the azaleas come back sure and i just thought how significant and and that we since all the monies went to back bay mission uh for the people that attended and some other people that couldn't attend but were wanting to write a check to help the situation um homelessness per and, and this is what back bay kind of goes on this is kind of their mantra that you know we're all one step away from being in a position where we don't have any place to live so if you think about covid and how many people lost their jobs or you think about 
somebody's house burns down or I mean going down the list of a devastating event in someone's life what what's going to come back first it's going to be the strong and the the ones that want to survive and the ones that are capable no matter how pretty or not they are yeah so if you think about the many many vets that are homeless thank you for your service I know you told me you served and so many people have and yet come back with horrific PTSD or you know some other physical injury that keeps them from going back into the workplace I mean and that's going to be your highest percentage right now especially on the coast of home, the homeless population so um, we need to recognize and like I said this image that I had this big print that I had done they're beautiful but they're a nemesis to the Delta farmer these weeds that I had taken a picture of so what do we do with all of that when it comes to the homeless population i'm real passionate about it because i i don't I, that's what i've always been about is trying to help somebody can't always do it but i can do whatever i'm capable of doing to raise awareness or you know give i've donated a lot of things photography or jewelry over the years of my books to um nonprofits for you know silent auctions or whatever like yeah. i don't have a bunch i can't write a big check but we can all do something yeah. to help whatever it is we're passionate about in this case it was the homeless population in this area i had no idea it was such an issue uh until i, I was interviewing candidates uh and getting a little more involved in the ocean springs elections and i heard that this was just a common um common topic to to come up and quite frankly i had to actually look and and i don't mean that like there there weren't a, a lot of people i didn't realize i had seen homeless people in in ocean springs or as many as i did because when i actually saw oh that's that that's a homeless individual right but i had known at that point that i'd seen them before but i didn't recognize homelessness as being a problem does that make sense yeah i think i think that's we can only see what we want to see and usually and perhaps I didn't want to see that well I don't think any of us do. yeah but yeah. but I started hearing people go what well, I don't think it's that big of a deal in Ocean Springs I'm like ride around just any time of the day or night I mean I I, I love milk and um, every now and then I get a hankering for a cookie at like a ridiculous time at night so I'll just go do the cookie dough and then think oh shoot I don't have any milk so there's a place in downtown ocean springs that i've been several times to get my gallon of milk mm -hmm. and almost without fail in the middle of downtown ocean springs there's at least one or two people either lying on the sidewalk or sitting on the sidewalk with their backpack obviously with nowhere to go and i used to i used to close my eyes and go there's some they they just don't want to work or i mean i used to justify in my own mind why i shouldn't help sure then i started giving money like just not that much but a couple dollars thinking oh they'll go get something to eat well then i was made aware that that's not always what they do is go get something to eat so then i began i remember a couple years ago uh, i was in the parking lot of uh, the methodist church that i came out of on a sunday morning and this woman just all of a sudden appears like out of nowhere at the passenger side door and says she's hungry i'm sure you've noticed that boat down in the bay and you know i really want something to eat and i said oh so i said well i'll tell you what i'll do and so i went to arby's and i don't know got a gift certificate where they would have 
the ticket. Yeah. Talked to the manager, and I had already told her what I was going to do. Well, then I started thinking, well, that's not, you know, she may or may not, because she said she had a bike, she could get down there. But that's not always the case. That's not always practical for the person on the street. So then I started keeping little bags, snack bags in my backseat of, you know, box drinks and nabs or whatever. Um, and it seemed like a trite offering um, for me to do that. So then I started trying to come up with what is another way that I can do something on a larger scale? Well, I still don't have the answer to that question. Right. Well, that, um, that is the question. You know, how can you do something scalable that's impactful, that's low cost and scalable and uh, being able to, to do something like you know, support somebody's living situation. But if we're all aware and we all are aware, I mean, once you become aware, you're culpable. It's no longer someone else's responsibility. Yeah. Then it becomes my responsibility because I am no longer either blinding myself or choosing to not see or whatever it is. And I've made effort to, you know, do X, Y, Z, my dinner was just a very it was a lot of work but it was very much worth it to sit around a table with 11 other people have a meaningful discussion have a meaningful discussion yeah. and you know i mean you don't have to have a jefferson sunny and dinner about homelessness you can talk about what is art you can talk about sure. what is light or i mean make it up but it just happened to be on in that context it was an incredible experience for me um that i would do again and um and i think it was very meaningful for all the people that were there it was just a really interesting two and a half hours where people were like on the same page we didn't talk about politics we didn't talk about what could or couldn't happen outside of there we were talking on a one-to-one -one basis or with you know 11 other people about what what everyone was thinking about the topic and um, so since then, I've become aware of a woman, for example, up in Birmingham, who it's really her passion and her heartbeat. She's raised like $3 million in less than three years to build a homeless shelter. Wow. And so that's what it's going to take is buy-in to the fact that, yes, we do have a problem and then effort to say, okay, we can't, we can no longer just ignore that this is an issue. We've got to be able to get on board with each other whatever anybody thinks that you know should or shouldn't happen like we were talking about throw your gauntlet down meet in the middle and let's say okay what's the best for all of us yeah yeah i was having a discussion with an individual about this and they uh, about about homelessness and this individual brought up the point uh to say what if people don't want to solve the problem and i don't mean that not that they don't think it's a problem what if they don't want to actually solve the problem? Assuming we had the means to solve the problem for Ocean Springs, right? The, he made the case that there's a disincentive to solve the problem because when you're good at something, you get handed more work. And so then pe people might bring more homeless people over to Ocean Springs. And then you reach a point because what you initially developed in terms of your infrastructure to house X number of people, now that gets pressured, right? And so then you have more homeless people because they can't get into the shelter. And I thought it was an interesting take on that, but that I think presupposes sure. that 
the homeless shelter is the end rather than the means. The means, I think, would be to create a vehicle to move people out of the status of homelessness, right? And, and so the Back shelter Bay, would be the vehicle for that. Back Bay promotes, um, I love their, you know, helping uh, someone find their way out of poverty, you know, yeah. not lending a hand out, but a hand up. I think their philosophy is, is a very good philosophy and um, they've been doing it for a minute. Um, we as a population we're so busy sometimes as a people in general I'm talking about anybody uh, we we want to that's why you know when I write something for any kind of social media or online article they don't want me to write over a thousand words nobody wants to read that yeah i'm amazed when people do take the time to read what i write that's long and um and and take the time to comment like you did on one of my posts about the jeffersonian dinner but um but unless and until we're all willing to engage and i, I was saying that to you earlier as well to work to disarm someone with whatever their barrier might be towards yeah whatever it is it doesn't matter whether we're talking about homelessness or we're talking about growing fruit trees or you know something maybe that you don't know anything about or like i don't know about you so i have to work to disarm you in order to engage you and for me to get to know you and where you are right and i don't think anybody's scared of engaging because they do that all the time they'll just do that engage in conflict and but battle it's the but herd mentality exactly. that no one cares right right and and so i think i think you're absolutely right you've got to find a way to 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 disarm people but at the same time you know bring it down a little deeper right so when you're disarming them you're making them now vulnerable and so it's incumbent upon the the individual wishing to de disarm the person that the environment is comfortable for them to be vulnerable and that's a tough thing to do as well you know, just being able to say, hey, this is this is that, safe for us to have this I conversation. I think the most, and that's it, have the conversation, but also the reality of where that someone might be in their life that they're on the street. Yeah. Um, so I've written, like, people don't engage with me on my Facebook page as much when I write about really serious things like homelessness uh but it's and i don't do it often because it is so heavy and it doesn't feel as encouraging and i'd rather encourage somebody but it is my passion one of my passions and so i wrote um i wrote something recently and posted it and um it was about me uh, going through um, an onboard situation with a corporation on the coast. Okay. And um, so all these different people, um, instead of doing a bunch of, I've, I've done work for a lot of different corporations as a travel therapist and done a lot of onboarding and most of them are always these videos and you check it off and blah, blah, blah. I read yeah. it. And, um, but um, this particular situation, all of the people, the you know, all the administrative people involved in this particular corporation were, were in live th format. One of those admin people um, came in and started speaking and said, now listen, I want you to understand that there are a lot of homeless people that are passing 
by all the time. I'm going to tell you, do not feed the animals. I can't even tell you what that did to me. I can't even tell you, like, even just saying it makes my heart hurt. Because he said, I've been told not to say this before, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> and I thought, and I reported it because I'm like, that just killed me, killed me. But nothing happened. So unless and until, like, if everyone in that onboarding uh, room that was we're all working in different aspects of that corporation had gone and said, look, what's wrong with this picture? But I don't know that anyone else did. And right. so unless and until we're made aware, I mean, they all obviously know we are, we know them by name. We're going to, but then you say something like that and I don't know, maybe he got his hand slapped. Maybe he didn't get anything, but it bothered the stew out of me. Yeah. And if that's the way we view people, so, for example, okay, this is a great movie. Have you seen, um, I think it's called The Violinist, and it's it's a, a Jamie Foxx and... Um, this is a new movie. Uh, Robert Downey Jr., maybe? Yes. Okay. I it know is it. one of the best, like, make-you-think kind of movies, and I like those kind of movies. Yeah, and yeah. Jamie Foxx um, was an incredible, like, what do you call him? It's Savant, almost, mm -hmm. with playing the violin but he was living on the street and morton downey jr had he was a new this is out in california he made a um he was like one of those like what i'd love to be like a investigative reporter i guess yeah and they gave him this story because of some excuse me somebody else had um had didn't want to do it so they and he was like i don't want to do this story well by the end of the you know without telling the whole thing he was so invested in this man and the interesting thing to me is they when they were trying to get him off the street his character jamie fox's character had this some flat it never would ex really explain didn't matter you knew that he had had some horrific situation happen in his other the rest of his life when he was in a enclosed space some kind of trauma some kind of you know awful treatment or something yeah so and we know that's the way it is with a lot of vets you know they i, I can't imagine yeah that you know you you've seen all this horrific stuff and then you were supposed to go back and just live a normal life and a lot of people can't in you know reintegrate into that world well let me tell you another part of that is that a lot of people a lot of these people on the on the street that are veterans that that have those experiences they're able to get three or four thousand dollars a month but they have to do their disability but the problem is the burden of proof of the disability is so damn high so it's it's like they could walk to a VA hospital and say, I'm a vet. They could prove that pretty easily, but then they would have to have documentation showing that they were at a certain location. And then when they were at the location, documentation, even a letter that says that, yes, this happened, like everything, your word doesn't matter. Your individual word doesn't matter. And I understand why, but we also have to understand that that's part of the problem here, you know, and we either have to, like we've got to figure out a way to reconcile that because ignoring it is not at all the right thing to well, do. Well, like I told you, I'm, I've really become a geek when it comes to research and documentation. I know in my world in healthcare, 
you know, I had to justify my very breath every minute of the day that I was working. And so I'm very much aware that that's the way the world works. But I mean, that's really the way my mind works. In looking for hard stats about homelessness, you almost cannot find them. But the last, now somebody's gonna say, oh, well, you gotta go to this website or wherever. Sure. And I'm sure somebody knows, but I can't seem to find them. And Mm. so the last hard stats that I was able to find basically said, 60 to 65 percent of people on the street are vets 80 plus percent have a mental illness okay so then when those other people want to throw out oh well those people just want to be on the street are you seriously going to tell me that that a human being with um that's born with dignity and you know you don't you don't you're not born with wanting to go to the bathroom in the street or any awful thing like they have to do you cannot tell me that the majority of the people that are in the street want to be there it just doesn't it's not even like you can't compute that there there is a i read an article on this there's a growing trend of what's called urban camping that mirrors homelessness but it is different uh and but i i i certainly agree I think people would read an article like that and say, see, people want to be on the streets. I, I agree with you. I don't think that that's true. I, th- I think it well, fails logically. Well, they're probably urban camping. Are they, are they using the bathroom in the middle of the street? Are they? Some people do that. Do they really? Uh, yeah. Okay, well, it's you're, a thing. You're, oh. Yeah, it's a thing. I, I don't get it. I'd never do it. It's, it sounds ridiculous to me. Um, but it, somebody, if that's their thing, whatever. Uh, but yeah, I, I find it to be. Well, I mean, the whatever there is, there's got to be a way to gather that information and know whether or not they're urban campers or truly homeless with, that are vets and uh, with mental yeah. illness. I would stick with the preponderance of evidence in this case. And, and, and the preponderance of evidence in this case suggests that these are very sick, needing people, uh, and, and something certainly needs to be done with it. Because look, I don't think this is, a, I think this is an apolitical issue. Right? Absolutely. Because either you're, you're left-leaning and you're viewing this from a sense of altruism, great. Or be selfish from a business standpoint and say, this is not good for business. Either way, you come to the table, make a decision on the margin of your beliefs and make a good decision to solve the problem. Well, and having said that, uh, when I had my dinner, the number of businesses, not just in Ocean Springs, but mostly in Ocean Springs, but I had over a dozen businesses contribute in some way, shape or form to the dinner. And, and then I had 11 people who were willing to come and write their check, uh, which was definitely for to all those proceeds, $150 each, went to Back Bay. And I know one of the criticisms that I received was, why would you, and I didn't call it a five-star dinner. It was a five-star dinner, but that's not what I was promoting. I was promoting people getting together and doing what Jefferson did. Let's, let's have a meaningful discourse uh, one person at a time talking over a dinner and someone criticized me and said well isn't it an oxymoron that you would have a five-star dinner for homelessness why didn't you do beanie weenies and I'm like because yeah. it was at my house yeah. and I did what I wanted to do that's also a, a, a cheap trick there it's a logical fallacy I it, and, and I, don't, I think it might be ad ad hominem the the uh, um logical fallacy but you're you're distracting from the point you're making a caricature of the actual intended point and that uh, again, that's a that's 
dead on arrival for me. But um, well, yeah. and you know, my goal was simply to raise awareness. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, I did say $150 donation towards Back Bay, and again, everything went to Back Bay, but there were so many individuals and businesses, not to mention what I did out of my own pocket in my own time to make that happen. It was a big, it was a big deal. I probably could have done it way simpler. Had I, it would have been a lot easier to just open a can of Beanie Weenies, but that's not what I wanted to do. No, you wanted to have a classy event that was a respectable event. And, and let's face it, you had a vision for what, for, for what this was. And I mean, that's what I would do if I were going to have you and your wife to dinner. I mean, I might, I mean, I would do it in the way I want to do it. I'm not going to do something halfway. I just don't do that. I don't know how to do that. Let me tell you something. Uh, my wife's grandmother uh, was an Air Force wife um, through the, uh, like the, the 50s and 60s, 70s, right? And the, so there's a book they read. They go to courses. And this is back in the day where like. Uh, how to be a military wife. Proper. Yeah. You had to be very proper. And she still has these books and they're fantastic. Comical, actually, for everything that women had to do to support their husbands, even justifying that that men had to be given time to go golf with their with their friends. That it was good. Good for their career. It wasn't a woman's place to 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 get in the middle of that ridiculous you know but uh so but when she has a dinner if i come over if me and mary just come over and just drop by she's clearing a table she's setting out you know silverware she's apologizing if she doesn't have have the right centerpiece i mean it's just i get it i get well, a it. lot of that's the southern way and 100%. I don't, i'm not gonna apologize for no the way that i was raised to entertain and i mean I'm not going to tell you I never have somebody and we have red beans and rice and sit at my little coffee table and talk. I mean, yeah. that's, that's real informal. But but if I'm going to if I'm going to do a party, I'm going to do a good party. Yeah. And you're going to want to remember the party. And my goal in this particular situation with the Jeffersonian dinner, my goal would be that the people in attendance would go on and try to reproduce they don't have to reproduce it just like i did because yeah. not everybody entertains the same way well the, well, the more important thing is is the actual you know the discussion exactly yeah exactly so, uh, if you want to do it with beanie weenies i don't care that's yeah. i mean my goal is let's 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 ripple out the effect of having meaningful discussion mm-hmm. and if you know if it ends up being about um art and culture or if it ends up being about homelessness or it ends up being about just connecting with people in your community yeah. I'm about that's what I'm about connecting with people I mean sure. I'm all about the people well I don't want to I don't want to belabor the point too much but but still like the more and more I think about it, it's like what incentive do you have to do that aside from it's just something that you do you know like going out of your way putting in all the effort all the planning that that goes into preparing the meal all that and oh by the way you wanted to it to be taken seriously and as evidence that you that you want other people to take it seriously you took the dinner seriously like it's to me, it's self-evident. Like I don't know how somebody it can come to it. It seems as dip. though it would be self-evident, <laughs> but I mean, I just like if I'm pat. We were talking about passion. Yeah. Um, if I'm passionate, and I'm pretty much passionate about whatever it is I invest my time and energy in. Sure. Sure. Into, um, but it's like I just don't. I don't want to do anything halfway. I didn't want to serve beanie weenies. I didn't want to serve hamburgers and hot dogs. I served what I wanted to serve. There you go. And I had a lot of help in order to do that. Yeah. Businesses um, that donated 
food or flowers or whatever, you know, and, and I wanted to acknowledge those businesses. Yeah. So that there people, people in this community, yes, we are a destination place. Melanie Allen said Ocean Springs is a brand and we are. Mm -hmm. It didn't used to be, but Ocean Springs grew out of a lot of hard work and a lot of people who were dedicated to the land and taking care of of what is what i have a theory that and i mean this is a pretty simple theory but wherever you live you're going to make your living off of the resources within that whether it, it's yeah. you know the delta you're going to grow cotton or corn or soybeans or whatever the land will produce here we used to be totally um a, a fishing community and it was a pretty sleepy fishing community now mm -hmm. it's not sleepy anymore and our number of commercial fishermen have dwindled to very small but you know we we have a lot of industry around here ingles we have keesler we have mm. exxon and i mean yep. stennis chevron yeah, yeah. yeah that's right so we've got a lot of resources there are a lot of smart people that are involved in all of that industry let's get a think tank and a you know let's get a group of people who are committed to doing that and if everybody were committed to saying we've got a problem i'm like let's be the answer let's let's come up with the answer and then let what we do here go somewhere else because right now no one's really that i know of. i have heard of some communities that are doing better than we are but mm -hmm. let's 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 be the let's be part of the solution instead of just saying oh well it's a problem 100 percent. And, and you know uh as far as the homeless uh, situation in in Ocean Springs, it seems like low hanging fruit if we can get out of our own way. Uh, and 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 here's 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 the evidence of it. Do you know that more than seventy percent of people uh, residents of Ocean Springs were not eligible for a stimulus check? No, I did not. Yeah, there's resources. Wow. Obviously, more than seventy percent of citizens well, not eligible. When you look at um the price of real estate and um what's going on just from a real estate standpoint in ocean springs yeah you know we have uh first responders that can't afford to live in our own community which this, is a sad thing this is something that that i brought up over and over again and and, and of course now they they increase the pay for the for the police officers and that was you know long long overdue but yeah i mean i don't think i want people that I mean, it's not that I don't want. Ideally, what I do want is people that are going to police and support their community to be able to live. Not that they to have the means if they want to, because some exactly. people may not want to live, but right. to have the means. If you want to live in, in, in the community the in which city. you serve, yeah. then there yeah. should be the means. Yeah. Back to my simple philosophy of life as evidenced by that little book. And again, it's a bestseller on Amazon. Um, was for a few minutes but the simplicity of encountering people wherever you are i mean there's a story about me talking to a lady in the grocery store i've never met before there's a a story of me encountering a man on front beach one friday evening when there was a beautiful sunset or the little guy in the elevator in jackson that was um telling me about how he was getting his degree so he wouldn't have to be a bus boy forever and ever yeah um if if we would slow down enough to take advantage of those moments some of them are from one floor to another some of them could be 
you know, oh, you got a good picture on the Front Beach, too. What are you, you know, I mean, we've forgotten. Actually, two of those stories are from Front Beach. And me just, you know, speaking to people, that somebody will be with me and they'll say, I'll speak to somebody. And they'll say, do you know them? Who is that? I'm like, I don't know. You know, like I said, I've been called loquacious before. But, <laughs> <laughs> hey, don't I know you from somewhere? I mean, I've met a lot of people that way. I mean, not not to be serious. I think I know a lot of people. But I've been all, I've got, my worlds are so big. Uh, I do know a lot of people, but I don't know some, you know. Um, and that I have met a lot of people that way. My sister invited me to go with her and her church. Um, she and her church, her, I get that English word <laughs> to go with her. Uh, oh gosh, almost 25 years ago, I guess, right after Perestroika, and we went to Russia, Romania, and Hungary. And she's as introverted as I am not. And so she said, I know you're going to see somebody over there that you know. And I said, I cannot possibly see anybody over there that I know. I don't know anybody. So we're in an elevator in a, in a hotel in downtown Moscow. And I hear this American voice. And I look up and I, I recognized him. And I said, hey, I said, were you in Jackson like two weeks ago? I was living in Jackson at the time. And he said, yeah. And he, he had been at my church. And <laughs> so we had this conversation. My sister, wow. my sister went, oh, you do know everybody. You know somebody <laughs> everywhere we go. Well, I've met so many people. Mm-hmm. People want to be acknowledged. Like my worst fear in life is to not remember someone's name. But I know I should know. Like moving back to Ocean Springs after being gone for 40 years, there are so many people who remember me because they've never been anywhere else. And I've had people go, oh, come on, you know who I am. I'm like, please don't do this to me. Just <laughs> please don't make me. But, you know, I'd rather say, I I know I'm supposed to know you, but I don't remember. Please tell me what your name is. I'd rather do that than not say their name. Yeah, no, I get it. Uh, so in the military, I just kind of needed to know. Well, I didn't really need to know your name at, at the end of the day, but essentially your last name. We were good there, uh, but I, I found it difficult to remember to to remember people's first and last names when when I got out. And of course, I was I was I was working in banking for a bit, and, I, and that's all about developing relationships, relationships. and whatnot. And yeah. so it was, uh, I had to go go back to one of my go to reads and uh, reread Dale Carnegie and remember his his technique because I knew that was something in there. And so is he the one okay. that says if you say someone's name in the first three times in the first 60 seconds yes it really does work yeah yeah there's there's that and then uh you know of course i think the chapter is the sound of somebody's name is is the sweetest uh sound they'll ever hear so basically saying it's important vital that you're able to recall and remember somebody's name well it's the least um it's the simplest way but probably the most effective way to acknowledge another person yeah yeah. And so that's why it's my big, like, I don't get embarrassed about anything, but I do get embarrassed if I can't remember someone's name because I feel like it's so significant. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I, I learned that, believe it or not, I learned this after re- revisiting the book of Genesis. Really? Yeah. How so, so? So when, so when, when God is calling into existence, the earth, the universe and everything talks about uh, the you know, the vast watery areas, he's oceans, the dryness in between, that's land, the vastness above, that sky, you know, the the the, the period of, of light is the day, the period of darkness is 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 night. And it's as if 
those things never existed until they were named. And so when you're born, when the you're first thing, we give you a name, we prepare for it. And that calls you into existence. And then I've used this because I've had to speak at a couple of funerals. I tell the story. And so what I say at the end of it is that if you want to give eternal life to somebody that you believe you've lost, continue to call them into existence by wow. calling their name. Yeah. Well, that's um, my first book. We haven't talked about this at all, but my first book is the story of, um, it's really a memoir of my having been a caregiver, like I told you. And my son, was he was born in 1985, was born with such a severe birth defect that, um, I mean, he this, this should have never been said, but it was, that um, they may just have to turn him into a girl. We were initially told he was a boy. Well, it was devastating, just like, yeah you have a boy and then now we don't know what you've got and so for seven hours it was the most hellish thing i've ever been through in my whole life is to what what is that what is that i mean how do you even consider that so i've learned about a whole different world of ambiguous genitalia and all kind of things that i never would have dreamed that existed and when the urologist finally walked in the door and he said, you've got 100% male, I didn't care what else he said. I didn't care how many surgeries we had to have or anything else. But my son's name is Jesse, J-E-S-S-E, and his name means God exists. Um, both of my girl, all, names to me are very important. Yeah and, yeah. and so his name means God exists. His middle name means loyal one. My other girl, my both of my girls, um, Hannah means uh, God's gracious gift, and Joy and Elizabeth means uh, joyful one, and you know the one that God sent. I think Elizabeth is yeah, basically. Yeah. So names. I mean, those are the only three people in the world I've been able to name besides my puppy dogs, and those have been important as well. But not their names have not been as strong like my recent. Uh, rescue puppy dog I found a few years back as a journey because he was all part of my journey so that is a very interesting observation I've never heard before that God spoke not only did he speak the world into existence but as he named things it it gave meaning and significance so that's a very cool observation yeah and it's it's been it's been beneficial for me to kind of see um, see people differently like prisoners what do we do strip their name here's a number it's as if you're not a person. Not a person any longer. Exactly. It's just like when my you know? son. It's like, like saying, "Don't feed the animals." Right. Right. So that's not a. So I want to touch on this. You said um, you're not treating. They're not being treated as people, and that's a problem. But that's plainly what they're doing but because see, we name people. So to finish the story yeah, yeah, about no 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 because no, I'm just going to bounce off of what yeah. you just said. So when I started writing about that incident, I also revisited a trip I took with my oldest daughter about 15 years ago to, we, I flew into Switzerland, went to Liechtenstein, Austria, and then we took a train across the Czech Republic and into Poland. Our end goal was to, um, to go to Auschwitz and Birkenau. And going back to your numbers or you know how given a prisoner a number and what 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 ultimate discrimination is because that's where we're talking about with discrimination was saying don't feed the animals my gosh i mean that's what they did i mean that's what ultimate prejudice and discrimination up to, against anyone whether we're talking about race 
or sexuality or um, homelessness or what may make it up, whatever socioeconomic issue or political issue you want to choose. Mm-hmm. And you want to, you know, pick out one section and go, well, we're not going to deal with those people. Well, what did Hitler do? Yeah. I mean, ultimate Nazism is just, well, if you don't, it wasn't even about the way someone looked. It was what kind of what their heritage was. Well, really? Mm hmm. So going back to what you just said and, and giving prisoners a number rather than using their name, it's all about stripping someone of any kind of human dignity or, or godlike um, attributes. And it's such an ironic thing, too, because, of course, uh, the, the uh, Holocaust victims were, were, were given serial numbers, right? But the thing that irritates me the most is that it, it's ironic because it's people in positions of authority doing this, right? But... To me, it's convenient for them to do it because by dehumanizing you or removing the human label, you're removing the ability to acknowledge this is a problem. And thereby, as you said, once you acknowledge it, it's incumbent upon you to now take responsibility. So by doing this, they're setting the stage for them to not acknowledge the human. And therefore, it's acceptable to treat animals in a certain way. And so if they're not human, they must be animal. And therefore, I am void of responsibility for caring for a human. It's a cheap trick. But it's almost it's sophisticated. It's almost an, it's it's a sophisticated trick. But at the same time, if you were to treat an animal in the way that was indicated, do not feed the animals. And we are so big on rescue animals, and I mean sea turtles, and make it up. We in that one comment, and by this particular entity, not getting some major i mean he should have lost his job and there should have been a public apology that's my opinion i mean i think it should have been something that stern but by saying that we then become big hypocrites because we 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 do everything to protect the sea turtles and and animals on the street i mean how many commercials do you see about you know the cats like you told me you were a big cat person Mm -hmm. or wasn't that you that said yeah yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. or or puppy dogs that have been i mean like my when i found my dog i thought he was dead i mean i thought i was going to bury a dog but but then we become total we are living hypocrisy that's true it's it's as if we have people animals and then some subclass of human that is also animal but also doesn't get the grace that we give animals exactly there you go grace is the word so we want to judge based on okay so you know i went to new orleans one time with a girl that i think she really wanted me to i didn't really have the kind of camera that she had but she i think she wanted me to take her picture in in that setting because she said she was doing a story on uh whatever you call them people that jump trains uh you know what i'm saying that the same kind of thing like like cowboys no (laughs) (laughs) no not those people um oh my gosh wait you call them there's a certain name is it like parkour that sort of thing or no jump off urban settings it's the same it's like the urban yeah but but i mean like doctors lawyers and indian chiefs who choose to six months out of the year work and the other six months out of the year they they hot trains i mean they know Honestly, I'm thinking like physically jumping from a moving train. Oh, oh, oh. I'm sorry. Well, they might do that too. (laughs) But anyway, I'm down there with her. And I I am not a very street savvy person at all because I want to trust everybody. Mm. And so I'm standing in the middle of the street shooting. I don't know. It was a Sunday. And uh, 
So I was all up in the middle of the person, you know, doing the musical show, the one-man band. Or, yeah. And she came up and she said, girl, you can't be doing that in the middle of the street in New Orleans, on this street. And I was like, oh, okay. But, I mean, there were people that they do that. I mean, I know what you're saying is true. It's more evident. It's very much more evidenced, I'd say, in a city like New Orleans than it is here. Sure. But we have been called a mini Bourbon Street now, you know, with yeah. where we are in Ocean Springs. Yeah, with the downtown. Yeah. 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 Well, how long do you think we've been here? I don't know. How long we've been here? Two hours. Have we really? It's a solid. It's this is a time capsule. It just happens. It's amazing. I mean, we could, we killed an hour before we even sat down. I know, I know. <laughs> but uh, look, I've, this has been a fantastic conversation. I have had an absolute blast. I have and, as well. Thank and you. I'm, and I'm glad we got to cover the uh, subjects that we did. I'm, I'm confident that we did so with 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 respect to the subjects as well. And you know, Sarah, I, doing this podcast has been so amazing because I've been able to meet people that I didn't know existed and talent that's right in my backyard that I grew up alongside. And you're one of those people that's oh, evidence of that. I mean, I, I get Thank to you. see, I get to see all your work you do through, through, through photography, through your talent, through the, through the written word. I mean, it's, it's, it's fantastic. Well, I um, appreciate that. And I'm thankful for, for, I, for I, I you and your, your passion. I want to go, oh, don't say anything else. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm the same way. You're looking at somebody who, uh. who, who doesn't know how to take a compliment, but, um, but no, truly, Thank you for your work, and I'm excited to read this book. And it's a um, real—I say, put it in your bathroom. You can you can just like read. It. <laughs> it's real simple. It's as simple as my first book isn't. Okay. Um, but, I'm definitely going to check those out too. Well, thanks. Um, but I want to thank you for what you're doing. You're bringing attention to people that otherwise might not ever have a voice. So I appreciate you letting me talk about all my passions and then a little bit more so it was a lot of fun i appreciate it well thank you thank you and uh, you're welcome back anytime and uh, we got to do a dinner sometime we will no that's that's a given we'll do it okay for sure all right everybody well thanks again we'll see you perfect everybody i hope you enjoyed that episode i certainly did and if you want to follow uh, more and hear more, you can check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. We're on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, everything. You can also follow us on social media. I've got a YouTube channel, so search for Shop and Chivalry. Subscribe there. We also have Instagram. Just look for Shop and Chivalry. Twitter, at Shop and Chivalry. And Facebook.com slash Shop and Chivalry. You can also shoot us an email at administration at shop and chivalry if you'd like to be on the show or suggest somebody or give more direct feedback you can also find that link on our website shopandchivalry.com where i have all of my ramblings about the show what the show means to me that that particular episode i've got a blog other media on there as well as well as embedded players so you can play the shows and the videos for those that that have video as well so uh, again Thank you for all the love. I appreciate all the feedback. It's been wonderful. I'm having a great time. And, uh, yeah, much love. All right. See you.